three main things I love about Dustin. Number one, he loves his Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. There's no doubt about that. And and he's open to talk about it, and he's open to explore it. He's open to help, helping you, each of us, build our faith deeper. The second thing I love about Dustin is he's curious. He is very curious. The world is not full of people who are curious, who will ask you questions. They'll tell you a lot, but they don't ask a lot of questions. And, and Dustin is one of those guys, and I, think, I have a feeling this is why he's here today. He wants to know why something works or doesn't work or how we got here and that sort of thing. And I just love that kind of exploration. And Dustin is also a guy that loves to build community, community amongst people, community in all sorts of ways. So I hope, I hope we get to see some of that curiosity and some of that community and certainly his faith today as he addresses us. Thank you. Thank you, Mark, for the introduction, and um, it's really good to be here and see a lot of the faces I haven't seen in some time, and um, gosh, I appreciate the kind words. I was just thinking back over the last 20 years, and, and um, you know, in preparation for this, I, I'd really, really been worried. I've got a lot of things that I want to say um, regarding my testimony and, and how things have happened and, and those lessons I've learned. But that's really not what I want to share. It was it, my prayer has been, Holy Spirit, what do I need to share? What have I learned over the last twenty-four years? I think twenty-three years in real estate that I want to share with the real estate community. And um, I think a lot of it is the the hard lesson I've had to learn, and it's going to tie into some of my testimony and what I want to talk about. But the hard lesson has been humility. Um, as Americans, we're not humble. Um, as Texans, we have an attitude of we'll get it done. We'll work harder. We'll get it done. And, and, you know, that's heavily in my family. I've got, I don't know, seven, eight generations pretty much on any side as native Texans. And I'm, I'm going to talk a little bit about that and the impact that's had on my life, both positively and negatively. Um, you know, and I think back whenever those those early days at Collier's and before that Corrigan with Mark, and he hired me, and I sat in the office for about two days and didn't know what to do. And finally, Mark said, if you don't get to work, you're not going to make it in this business. And I said, well, what do I do? And he said, you call on tenants. And I said, well, gosh, how do I call on tenants? Well, I don't know, get in the tax rolls and look at business personal properties and numbers big, call those people. Well, who do I talk to? called the CEO, the CFO, or the COO, and so I'm 25-ish years old at the time, and you know, not long out of West Texas and Eastern New Mexico, and had no idea of anything in business, and yet I had the pride or arrogance to get on the phone, talk to a CEO of a major company, and go tell them that they needed me to work on their account. <laughs> and we've all been through that. The business teaches us to not be humble. The business teaches us to go up against our competitors and say we're better than them. And God teaches us something different. Our Texas culture teaches us, yeah, be proud of who you are. God teaches us be humble. Um, so kind of the catchy phrase that I came up with working on this 
and it relates to humility, and I'll get into that. But the phrase was God, work, and real estate, and various idols that I've served. And um, I think I think a lot of us in the commercial real estate industry struggle with idols. Um, you know, um, I think it's something something we deal with. Um, I know I do. I used to think whenever I was a child, I thought, okay, reading the Old Testament prophets and they were worshiping a statue or you know some little gold trinket or whatever, and I thought, gosh, we don't deal with that. We do. We worship our cars. We worship our success. We worship our children. We worship our service to God. God's not an idol, but our religions and our service to him can be. We worship all of these things. We worship, oh, where am I going in my career? I'm going to have it all. I'm going to be the person on Facebook or whatever social media platform that looks like they have it together. And um, we, we really can't be what God wants us to be with that attitude. Um, you know, idols aren't just gold statues. Idols are often good things. The Texas mentality of I'm going to work hard and I'm going to get it done, great mentality. But when it comes before being led by the Holy Spirit and what God wants you to do, it's an idol. Um, idols are passed down in families. I've thought about how did I end up where I'm at, and I look at all the family history on both sides, and I've got some anecdotes about that. There are things that my great-grandparents and great-grandparents did that affect my life today that's been passed through my family. I think, um, you know, the Bible does talk about some of those generational things that go on and on, and they can be good things, and a lot of times even the ones that we worship as idols are good things. Um, you know, godliness, hard work, those type of things. But when we put it above God, it's a problem. Um, the other thing is I think those idols can be transferred among friends. Um, so for those of you who know me um, well will know I'm a huge gun collector guy. Um, and um, I had a friend, gosh, we did three things together. Um, we would quite often, three commonalities, we'd get together and we'd have a scotch. We'd talk guns and we'd talk theology. And he passed away about a year ago um, at the young age of, I think, 54 or 5. Um, but I would look at how we would encourage each other in this idol of, oh, you know, I bought this on Gunbroker, or I bought this, you know, esoteric <laughs> gun. And um, there were times that relationship was a little bit toxic because there were good things with us talking about God. There are a lot of not-so-good things um, in focusing on something that was taking us away from God. Um, the, the real thing idols do, though, is they get in the way of the purpose of man. And my favorite outline of what the purpose of man may be is in the, um, I believe it's in what's called the Baltimore Catechism of the Catholic Church. Um, I've got a bunch of Catholic family, and I'm not Catholic, but I'm, you know, love Catholics, love Protestants both. I think we let too many of our differences and histories get in the way of serving God when we should be doing stuff together. But the Baltimore, the Baltimore um, Catechism, and this is my paraphrase, 
um, it states the purpose of man as to know him, to love him, and to serve him. So those things that we do that get in the way of that, that's a problem. To know him, to love him, and to serve him. Um, so I guess you know, as given as one who's giving my testimony, I'm gonna I'm gonna talk about this continual struggle I have with these idols that I serve. And the first one is service to God. The second one is work, which has a lack of humility in it because it's saying I can do it if I just work harder. And the third one's real estate, um, which I see no greater physical value than a piece of land. That's There's a long family history with that coming from a family of farmers that go back as far as you can look. Every, it's all about the land, which to me encompasses all physical possessions, right? Almost everything we have, if not everything physical, comes from the land in some sort. So I guess starting with the first one, um, service to God, um, actually before I get into that, the first question is, is God really God? And how do we know that, right? Because I'm saying anything that we put before God is an idol, but... If God's not really God, it doesn't matter. So how do I know God's really God? I'll start with Romans 1.20 from that standpoint. And Romans 1.20 is, For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his, his internal power and divine nature, have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made, so that people are without excuse. So the physical world is a testament to the existence of God. And we take that for granted. Um, I recently read a book by a guy named Craig Keener, who's an Asbury Seminary theologian, biblical history guy. It's called Miracles Today. And he went and uncovered, I think it was 11,000 post-apostolic age miracles, took a um, a, um, panel of um, doctors, half of which were atheists because he wanted skeptics, and went through them and said, which ones they're which ones do we have of these that there's no explanation for? You know, it, there are things that could be an explanation. For instance, somebody saying, hey, I can't walk, or I'm in a wheelchair, and they get prayed for, and maybe they walk, and it's like, well, maybe it's psychosomatic. Um, on the other hand, he talks about a lady who was dying of, um, with multiple sclerosis, had been wheelchair-bound for um, 20, 20 years, I believe, her organs were starting to stop working, her diaphragm wasn't working, her digestive system wasn't working, her limbs were curled up. Um, her name was Barbara, and she hears the audible words, Barbara, get out of your chair and walk. And the limbs straighten out, the organs start functioning. She gets out of her chair and walks, and that was 1981, and she was still around when he wrote the book, um, apparently with no big problems, in 2021. And um, I don't know, look that book up on Amazon if you want to read about some of those. It's divided into stories that can be read in three to five minutes, and some of them are absolute. What's book called? Um, Miracles Today by Dr. Craig Keener. Um, you know, God still does things in our life today. And Keener's point was, and I think he uses maybe even this passage I'm talking about, the fact we're here, we're breathing, all of that's a testament to God. But yet, if it's commonplace... 
then we say, oh, that's just the way things work. And he says if miracles happened all the time, every time we turned around, then the scientists would say, eh, that's just a miracle. That has always happened. But it's a testament to God. Um, some other things. So um, family history. My dad grew up in the Catholic Church in um, the Texas Panhandle, which was unusual for Anglos. I think um, I think our family in Friona, Texas, in the Maloofs, um, who were Lebanese, were probably the only non-Hispanic um, Catholics in Friona at the time. Um, and it was a big Church of Christ town. And again, gosh, love the Catholic Church, but for whatever reason, pre-Vatican II, you know, Latin masses and all that, my dad as a child never connected to it. And so he's in his 20s and um, kind of was a rough guy. <laughs> Quite honestly, he worked hard, he took care of his family, but he was kind of not a person to be trifled with and wasn't following God and, and seeking God. And um, um, he ended up, through a series of circumstances, at um, First Assembly of God of Friota, Texas, and the pastor was James Bond, not 007, but James Bond. Um, and I remember, I was, I think the year was 70, 1978, and um, I'm around four years old, three, four years old. I remember him going up, and they prayed for him, and the elders pray, and I remember all this stuff happening, and then I remember him pulling his Winstons out, or Marlboros, whatever he smoked, I think he smoked both, pulling them out of the pocket, throwing them in the trash can, and walking out the door, and something changed in our house at that moment. And I would be walking around the house, and I would say, why am I so happy? And I still remember this at three and four, and I would think about it, and I'd realize, oh, that's the presence of God. He was there. For me, that's the biggest testimony, is that presence. And then as time went on, I had all these things, these idols get in the way of that. And you know, that feeling kind of went away for a long time. Um, I still was a Christian, I still served God, but I didn't have that feeling of that presence for, for a long time. And, you know, I still totally don't have it like I did then, but I'm getting back, and I'm going to talk a little about that. Um, the second thing that was just absolutely miraculous, so um, fast forward about 20 years, and um, I think the year was 1998. Um, it was right before I moved to Dallas and got in real estate. Um, I was working for my dad. We had a business. He had a business called Radial Machine and Welding out of Hobbs, New Mexico. And so we did machine work, welding work, fabrication, whatever, all over the Permian Basin. We'd go out on drilling rigs. We'd do stuff in the shop. Um, you know, and that's a real, speaking of the get it done type mentality, if I can do it, that oil field Permian Basin type mentality is all of that. You know, you go 24-7, if something needs to be done at 2 a.m., you get out of bed and you go do it. And if it takes three days without sleep, then that's also what you did, at least at that time. And so we were on a rush job. We were building a, what's called a gun trailer perforating gun trailer for one of the wireline companies. I don't remember if it was Slumberjay or Black Warrior Wireline or who, but one of the big, big, um, you know, Weatherford would be another one that we worked for. We're building this gun trailer. It had to be out at noon. Um, I was welding for my dad, but we had a couple of guys that all they wanted to do was weld. That's their life ambition. And it was below them to go paint and wire and finish things up. So I'd be the guy that would finish the trailer up. The welding shop was kind of separated from the machine shop, which was cleaner. 
So I had this trailer in the cleaner area and had just wired it. I was putting wheels on it. I had a, a chain and a hoist and had the trailer picked up. And I slid a wheel on, and I guess I'd been in a hurry and I didn't hook the chain well, and the trailer came down on my hands. Probably a 4,000-pound trailer. And um, my hands were pinned between the top of the tire and the trailer. We built really heavy-duty fenders so a 250-pound roughneck could go jump on them and not bend them. It had broken that fender and broken all the welds all the way around it, probably six or eight feet of weld. And um, the welders, again, were in the different part of the shop. They couldn't see me. It was lunchtime-ish. My dad was out. They were grinding. And so both of them had angle grinders running, which are very noisy if you've ever been around them. And um, I yelled for about 15 minutes, and um, I'm thinking, I don't know if I'm going to have hands whenever they get this thing off of me. Finally, they stopped grinding. They heard me. They came in the shop and pulled the um, trailer off my hands, and my hands were mangled. And I was had blood pooling under the skin, and they looked bad. And we had two welders there that day. One guy was Shannon. I can't think of Shannon's last name, but he worked in the big shipyard. I want to say it's in Pascagoula, Mississippi's, where he learned to weld. He was like a really old guy at that time, about 35 years old. And um, he had moved to the Hobbs area to pastor a Pentecostal holiness church in Eunice, New Mexico, I think, outside of Hobbs. And his day job, his tent making, was welding for my dad. The other guy was a guy named Charlie Ortega. Charlie was great, um, probably about five foot four tall and about five foot four wide, and big, strong, muscular guy, and just loved welding. I mean, that was his thing. And um, Charlie was fun to be around, great stories, but he would be pretty vocal about being an atheist. And so he was having to put up with me, my dad, and Shannon talking to him about God all the time. And so, like, I don't believe that stuff. Um, so I'm standing there with mangled hands, and Shannon grabs me and grabs Charlie and said, we're going to pray for this boy in his Mississippi accent, if you can imagine that, which I don't know I can do, but um, we're going to pray for this boy. And he grabbed Charlie, and Charlie said, yes, sir. And Shannon prayed a prayer of healing over my hands. And they started looking better. And it kept clearing up, and it took my dad about 20 minutes to get from wherever he was at to the shop. And they keep looking better. And I'm in the car on the way to the hospital. I'm thinking, what is going on? My hands are looking better. And we get to the hospital. They x-ray me. And they said, well, there are a few pieces of metal because we'd, we'd taken a shear. If everybody knows, probably not everybody does. A shear is a, something that will cut metal. And it leaves a little kind of edge that sticks out. That edge, it's stuck under the skin. And they could see all that in my hands in the x-ray. So they knew it had been dropped on me. And they said, you're fine. You've got some bruising. Go home for the day. And um, and um, anyways, I go home, and I went to work the next day and was just fine. And Charlie pulled me aside, and exact words, I'll never forget it, was, I saw your hands. They were messed up. They were busted up. I saw the way you were bleeding under your skin. That was a miracle of God. I don't know what happened to Charlie, but but when you have the atheist, saying that's a miracle of God. Um, you know, that's something. Um, kind of the third one that involves physical healing is um, I shared with um, my pastor friends who came along with me. I've got three pastors from the Granbury area who I'll tell you a little more about um, in a moment. But um, um, 
I shared that starting really the last eight or nine months, I've kind of gone through my Job time of testing. So the so the um, John chapter 15 pruning, and it's uncomfortable time. And all of that kicked off with kind of getting really sick over about a month, and that turned into a fever that the doctors couldn't figure out, um, which doctors are great, but sometimes they don't know. And if our trust is in the system more than it's in God, then that's a problem. And I'm not saying that, you know, I'm not that don't go to the doctor guy. Absolutely, go to the doctor if you're sick, but put your trust in God. Um, so I had this fever, you know, 12 COVID tests, and or I think it wasn't 12, it's probably eight, and six flu tests. They couldn't figure out what it was. And it just kept getting worse and worse. And each day was worse than the one before. And um, I was having these just terrible dreams. I'm not even going to get into that and delirium. And um, finally, I'm thinking, I don't think I'm going to make it out of this. And so I texted my parents to pray. And um, it took all I could do to text them, literally, in a few words. And um, kind of fell asleep after the text for about two hours because it took that much energy. And so my dad, who's a, and my parents both are prayer warriors, prayed all night for me. And um, the next day, he called Sarah, my wife, and said, you got to get Dustin on the phone. And she's like, well, he's pretty sick. And he said, get him on the phone. And so he got me on the phone, and he prayed over me. And I think the prayer, the one, the one I remember about it, was I bind the power of the enemy over this situation. And um, the fever lifted. I was still weak. <laughs> but that was the first time in 10 days that I'd felt better. And um, it was just amazing. At that instant, the fever lifted. And it took me... 30 days or so before I, or more, maybe 45 before I felt normal. But it was a pretty clear line in the sand. And so, yes, God does care about our physical bodies. You know, does healing come all the time? No, but does healing come from our our Savior, whether through the hands of a doctor or, or other means? Yes, absolutely. Um, that piece of God that I mentioned, so... That pruning that started with the fever, there have been other things that have gone on in the last six months that have just been challenging. But it's taught me to have really, I stayed a couple of months in John 15. You know, being in the vine, the vine and the branches, and those who are in the vine are either thrown away or pruned. So fortunately, I feel like I've been pruned. And, um, and it's painful, but it's a process to teach you to put God before those things you trust in, is what, is what it amounts to for me. So... Since I believe God is really God, why don't I serve him like I should? That's a big question for me. And I think it's falling back into to those old habits that I've been taught all my life and believed. I can do it on my own. If I just work harder, if I'm just a little bit smarter, if I meet the right people, if I do the right things, then I'll be okay. Guess what? That's not true. You won't be okay. You'll be okay if you serve the Savior and you find that peace that I mentioned earlier. That's being okay. Um, you know, what things do I trust in? It's food, drink, shelter, relationships, religion. All these things that draw us away. Um, my strongest idols are all good things. And really for me, it's it's the religion idol. It's the hard work idol. It's those possessions I have, that real estate. And that's the constant struggle. 
So the religion idol, can serving God be an idol? For me, yeah. Yeah, it can. I do things that are in service to God but aren't called or ordered by God, right? I want to do things under the power of the Holy Spirit, not under my own power because I'm good at it. We've seen plenty of churches over the last few years that apply the great modern business principles. I'm not putting down any church, but go in, apply great business principles, teach the gospel, but focus more on the principles of modern thought. And these churches grow like crazy, and then when they collapse, you see all these hurt lives. You know, I'm not going to name them, but we've all seen that happen. Man's wisdom, even in the church, isn't going to get us there. It's serving God that gets us there. So, you know, my question I ask myself, are, are my actions furthering me, that lack of humility, that prideful person that's me? Or are they bringing me to know him, to love him, to serve him, and bringing others to know him, to love him, and to serve him? That's how I, gosh, that's my, that's my test of whether, whether it's of God or of man for me. The work thing. So this one goes deep. Um, I was talking about all those generations. So my dad's family... Um, they're they're good Texas Germans. My grandmother, my grandparents spoke up speaking the dying language of Texas German, and they migrated from. Um, gosh, my grandmother's family um, were Heinrichs, no relation to Matt, but um, moved from Moravia, I believe. So they're technically Czech, I guess, but German, culturally German. And the, why did they come? They followed priests, the Catholic Church. And they were looking for land and possessions. And then they got here and they worked sun up to sun down. And then my great-grandfather's generation did it. And my grandfather's and my dad's. Um, my dad's aunts and my aunts did a book about 20 years ago. And they outlined the family values for the Schilling family. Um, the values were God, hard work, subsistence, in other words, I can do it on my own, and as farmers, you can subsist. And loyalty to family. My dad grew up on a farm, and they lived a little bit like 19th century. There were 13 kids, and they had, you know, a real farm, but then they had five acres or whatever of vegetables they grew. They milked their own cows. They made their own butter. They butchered their own cattle, butchered their own hogs. And they basically fed the family without buying a whole lot. And it was hard work. Um, you know, my dad said the only day they didn't work was Sunday they'd go to church, and after church they'd take a nap, or the kids would go out and play. Um, I asked him what his earliest memory was, and he said his earliest memory was taking a pillowcase and picking cotton, and he knew he was two years old because my grandfather bought a mechanized cotton stripper um, when he was three. And that was in near where Mark grew up. That was in Slayton, Texas, about 20 miles south of Lubbock is where that farm was at. Um, the early days of working for my dad, it was further ingrained. When I turned 12, I was really excited, as I always was, about summer coming up and getting out of school. And um, 4 a.m., there's the knock, knock, knock on my door, and he didn't tell me he was going to do this and said, get up, we're going to work. 
And so from then on, I basically was an oil field worker on weekends and summers from 12 years old till 25. I started going out on drilling rigs and following welders around with a grinder and a chop saw and cutting torch and all that um, at 12. And we would leave the house quite often at four in the morning. We'd drive two hours to Crane, Texas, or No Trees, or to Indian Basin outside of Carlsbad, New Mexico, or to you know some little town outside of Lubbock or whatever. We'd go work, and um, a lot of times we'd be working till after dark in the summer. So basically, sun up till at least sundown. And my dad paid me a dollar an hour. And um, I remember by the time I was 15, I'd saved up enough to put $2,000 down on my first car. So that tells you, I'd spend a little, a lot of hours at a dollar an hour. Um, yeah, well below minimum wage at that time, but it's kind of slave labor. You know, that, that really, those experiences, they ingrain in you. And when I came to Dallas in real estate, I applied those lessons. And honestly, it gave me success, or some success. Maybe not quite as much as I wanted. Gave me some level. And Mark was there. You, you saw some of it. Um, but it was doing it on my own. There's a scriptural version of all this, I think. There's several of doing it on our own. And one of them is the Israelites decided they wanted a king. They had judges. They were being led by the Spirit, I believe. But they said, hey, the Philistines have got a guy that can make decisions for us, get us one of those. And so Samuel comes and says, great, God has heard you. Or maybe he didn't say great, but he did say God has heard you. And um, you'll get a king. That king will make your children servants, will send your young men off to war, will tax you with a heavy burden. And really that happened under Solomon is where it's really outlined. And do you know what the tax on the people by Solomon was. It's a, it's a number that is probably the best known number in the Bible. His tax was 666 shekels, or not shekels, talents of gold a year, which is, I did the math, I can't remember, it's a lot. It's like 25 tons or 50 tons of gold. I think in modern, um, modern dollars, it'd be like $1.6 billion a year. There's a, there's a Catholic apologist that I've read some of his writings named Scott Hahn. And Scott Hahn wrote something that I found very intriguing about this number. 666, we're always stuck in the sixth day of work and we never go to the seventh day of rest. And I know the number has more meaning than that, but a lot of the Bible is multifaceted. And I believe that, you know, this number that's repeating. I never can get out of doing it on my own. I never can find rest. That is working on our own. Um, Hebrews, Hebrews outlines some of this about entering into God's rest. Hebrews 3 through 7, 3, 7 through 11 says, So as the Holy Spirit says, Today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as you did in the rebellion. During the time of testing in the wilderness, where your ancestors tested and tried me, Though for 40 years they saw what I did, that is why I was angry with that generation. I said their hearts are always going astray, and they have not known my ways. So I declared an oath in my anger, they shall never enter my rest. Why is that? Because we have hard hearts. We think we can do it on our own. We're prideful. All these idols. With that said, 
Hebrews 4.9, talking about the same thing, says that the seventh day of rest still stands. So God created for six days. He went into a seventh day of rest, and he's in that rest today. And the offer stands for us to enter that rest. Hebrews 4, 9 through 11 says, There remains then a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For anyone who enters God's rest also rests from their works. Just as God did from his. Let us therefore make every effort to enter that rest, so that no one will perish by following their example of disobedience. So think about all of our individual lives. When we are trying to do it on our own, that's that rebellion against God that that blocks us from entering into God's peace that he desires for all of us to have. And I'm not going to say I have it figured out because I don't. I still spend time on the do it on my own, lack of humility. I'm tough enough to figure it out attitude. So um, the last one are kind of the physical possessions, which for me is real estate. I would rather have land than dollars any day. That's just the way I'm wired. I come from it, come by it naturally. I look at my mom's family. Um, according to the historical marker in um, the tiny community of Gover, Texas, outside of Bonham, it's about 10 miles out of Bonham, um, my mom's family came here in 1841, is what the sign says. Why would they come here in 1841? I suspect it was desire for land. And Texas was a different place then. They'd just become their own country. And there were Comanches that would come out of the, the Texas panhandle up around Lubbock and Amarillo, ride all the way down here, take what you had if you were a settler, and maybe kill you, your wife, maybe take your children into slavery, and bring them back and trade them in New Mexico the goods they took in New Mexico, and it was happening often, why would you subject your family to that? The draw of land. Let's come to Texas and get more land. Material possessions. And I'm not saying ambition's a bad thing. I don't think it is. But sometimes we put things before God, and I don't know if they put the desire for land before God. I'm not sure. You know, 1840 was a long time ago, at least from my perspective. Um, but I think that that mentality coming from agricultural families of the more land I can have, the, the better I am, is in my head. It's, it's why I'm in real estate, probably. Right? It goes back to the land. You can build buildings on it. You can mine it. You can farm it. You can raise cattle on it. You can do all sorts of things. You can enjoy it. You can find some semblance of peace by enjoying God's creation. Right? It, it really is the basis for many of our, if not all of our, physical possessions. And, um, you know, I've struggled with getting that thought process out of my head, or at least balanced, where it's like, yeah, I can have that, but I'm not going to have obtaining it control me or cause me to do something unethical. Right? Not that I haven't. I'm sure I've probably there's probably somebody in this room that says, gosh, I remember when he did this or that, and I probably did. So I'm sorry if you're out there. <laughs> yeah, so, so really, um, it's, um, it comes down to this. If, if we put those things before God, they're idols. And if we make those choices to put those things before God, they're idols. And every one of us does it. For me, it's, it's even the good thing of serving God. 
can be put for, before him. The good thing of I'll work hard and, and try to make things happen and the amb ambitions of wanting more. And, um, you know, that's a, that's a big struggle for me. Um, I'm learning day by day as I get pruned to, that I'm not all that. Just not. Um, you know, yet I've spent 20-something years sitting in front of people saying I am. Hard lessons to unlearn. And those of you in the business, you know, that have won the account, and like we have, you know, pitching the new client, pitching the equity partner, the lender, the tenant, the buyer, the seller. We've all sat down and, and told people how great we are to, to try to win those things. And we, we don't, we can't believe our own stuff. <laughs> you know, I think being humble and approaching it um, with a humble heart before God is, is much more important than anything we can do on this side of the, of the curtain in this life. You know, we're sacrificing a short period of time for eternity sometimes. When the storm rages, when all of those things, all those idols are coming crashing down and you feel like your world's falling apart and that happens to all of us, I challenge you to seek God's rest. When you wake up at 2 in the morning and you're thinking, how am I going to pull this deal together? Or I've got to make tuition payment for my kid and is this commission going to make? Or I've got to make house payment, is this commission going to make? Am I going to sell this deal and get a promote? Is it going to go back to the lender? Am I going to get it done? I've got a deal under contract and I'm half a million dollars or a million dollars out in pursuit. Am I going to get the deal done? And you're at 2 a.m. worrying about it. Instead of worrying about it, put it before God. The Bible portrays God as being on the mountain. Go up on the mountain with Jesus and talk about those problems and watch them drift away. And if they happen, they happen. And if they don't, it's in God's hands. So remember... We are created not to do great things on this earth, to build big buildings and do big transactions. We are created to know him, to love him, and to serve him. And if any of you are struggling and want to talk um, at any time, look me up. You can find me. Give me a call. Shoot me an email. I'm around. Um, that, that wraps up what I want to say, but before I give the, the podium up, um, I wanted to thank three guys that are new friends or have been over the last many months. Um, I recently moved to the Granbury area and um, commute back and forth to Dallas, and I'm doing some stuff out there too. And I've met um, three pastors that I've really enjoyed getting to know. And um, they came with me, and I got to ride in a car with three pastors who didn't know each other previously and um, some great conversations. Um, but that's Larry Potts. Larry is a retired Southern Baptist minister. He was up in the northwestern Arkansas region for years, pastoring churches. He now says he's a pastor of churches with no walls. And um, I got to know him um, doing um, nursing home ministry um, in Glenrose, Texas. And then he's got an incredible Facebook ministry and um, really just does a good job of, of I think, giving people an example of being Christ-like. Um, yeah. um, the other in the white t-shirt here is Alan Stoddard. 
Um, Alan is former Southern Baptist minister, Calvary Chapel minister, and he is working on a church plant. He recently moved to the Granbury area from Rodosa, New Mexico, and um, just an all-over, all-around great guy and close friends with some of my spiritual mentors. And um, I've known Alan for a short time, but I feel like I have known him longer just because of his relationship with some close friends of mine. And lastly, Alan Lotta. Alan is pastor of Generations Church in Granbury, Texas. And I absolutely love Alan and his wife, Yvette. I've been going there since about January, so it's been a short time. Um, but just really enjoyed sitting under his teachings and just the prayers that his wife has prayed over our family have been, Yvette has prayed over our family have been incredible. And I really love something, and I think it's that they do, Generations Church is almost like a mission statement, and it's my version of this, and I'll probably get it wrong, is connecting various people of various ages, generations. And, um, you know, I, I challenge each of you, mentor those who are younger, find, be mentees of those who are older within the faith. Find those people that you want to be like and go invest in their lives. So thank you, that's, that's about what I have to say.